Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio nerds, welcome to this joint ACC Cardio nerds narratives and cardiology series developed to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is a collaboration between the Cardio nerds, the Pennsylvania ACC chapter, and the Fellows in Training section. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit. Relevant speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. So with that, my friends, join us in the coming months on Air Force Cardio Nerds as we travel from state to state, learning from inspiring faculty and trainees representing different backgrounds, discussing topics they're passionate about and their personal narratives. Today, we fly to Austin, Texas, where we host the ACC Texas chapter to learn from Dr. Kamala Tamarisa. But first, I'd like to welcome my co-hosts, Dr. Miranda Merrill, ambassador from OHSU, Dr. Natasha Chuck from Cedar sinai and Dr. Stephanie Fuentes from Houston Methodist. You know, people ask us how Cardinals got to where it is today. And the very honest and resounding answer is that it's always been about the people. So Stephanie, Miranda, and Natasha, thank you so much for making Cardinals what it is. And I'd like to just, you know, express how grateful I am for you guys to be here to lead this discussion, this episode. Maybe you guys can introduce yourselves for the audience. Hi, I'm Natasha Chuck. I'm currently a third-year cardiology fellow and chief fellow at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. I'm a California native. I grew up in Orange County. I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad and then completed my medical school and residency training at UCLA. I'm passionate about electrophysiology, which is why I'm so excited to be here today. Good morning. I'm Stephanie uh, Fuentes. I'm one of the second year, um, almost third year as well, general cardiology fellow at Houston Methodist. I was born in Peru, but I've been living here in Houston. I did my medical school in Galveston, Texas, and I then continued on my residency and fellowship at Houston Methodist. I'm also going to be pursuing electrophysiology, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Hi, I'm Miranda Merrill. I'm one of the second year, almost third year cardiology fellows at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. I'm going to be one of our chief fellows next year. I'm an Oregon native. I grew up in uh, Corvallis and went to uh, college at University of Oregon. Um, I went to medical school here at OHSU. I left briefly and went to residency at University of Colorado in Denver, but I couldn't stay away and came back to OHSU for my cardiology training. I am hoping to apply to electrophysiology this year as well. So I'm very excited uh, to be here. Thanks, guys. Welcome, everyone. This is going to be so much fun. I'm already so excited. Miranda, you want to take the honors and introduce our incredible guest? Absolutely. So today's narrative is with Dr. Kamala Tamarisa. Dr. Tamarisa completed her training in internal medicine and served as chief resident at St. Louis University in Missouri. She then went on to complete her general cardiology, cardiac electrophysiology, and cardiac MRI fellowships at the University of Michigan. She joined ProMedica Physicians Cardiology, a large private practice cardiology group under the ProMedica Health System in Ohio, where she served as the director of the Arrhythmia Service Line and the director of education. She also served on the ProMedica Health Institute Leadership Board and the Heart Institute EP Council. While maintaining an active cardiology practice, she took a lead in building bridges across physicians, staff, and administration. She's a national ACC Women in Cardiology Leadership Council member and co-chair for the ACC Women in Cardiology Advocacy Work Group. She's the current co-chair of the Texas chapter of ACC EP section. She's an HRS TV subcommittee member and an HRS Digital Health Committee member. Apart from being a passionate electrophysiologist and patient advocate, she's received numerous awards for making an impact on her community well-being, domestic violence and its impact on cardiovascular disease, and health of minority women. She is dedicated to women's empowerment, has given numerous presentations on this topic to national audiences. Her passions resolve around gender equity, in and out of medicine, women empowerment, being a voice against disparities in physician well-being. Dr. Tom Marisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Miranda. That was uh, quite a warm welcome. I appreciate it. You don't know, I'm truly honored to be here with the incredible cardio nerds. You don't get this chance every day. And the other exciting part today is to see three women who are interested in EP. And uh, this is the day when, uh, you know, like RBG said, when all EP physicians are women, that's the day we're going to celebrate. <laughs> 
Dr. Marisa, you have had such a successful career as an electrophysiologist and have held so many titles and leadership positions. You're a wonderful mentor for fellows and an advocate for women. What is your favorite part of the job? That's a very great question. What's the favorite part of my job? Well, without sounding too cliche, I think my favorite part of the job is taking care of the patients. I love being bedside, whether it's taking from outpatient settings to the EP lab or the bedside to the EP lab. And uh, the curative ablations we do for SVT patients, including the Wolf Parkinson White patients, that I think is the most exciting part of the job. And think about the devices we implant, you know, the life-saving devices, for example, ICDs. Think of the number needed to treat to prevent one death. It ranges anywhere from 6 to 22 based upon multiple randomized control trials. And that's extremely gratifying. And uh, Macy, what excites me the most, EKGs <laughs> excite me the most. And uh, they excited me since I was in medical school. Anything, anytime I see an EKG, I jump to this day. I try to boil down. I try to dissect the EKG. And uh, that's where I bond with my trainees, whether it's medical students or fellows or residents. And uh, I think I had a conversation with Miranda. We were talking about why EP. And I remember uh, she mentioning to me, you know, I went to the lab and I saw a patient with the wolf and, and then they ablated and it went away. And I can tell you there's nothing exciting more than EP. Just that technology, the marriage between analytical thinking, tactile uh, touch with the deductive logic. That's the field. It's just uh, beautiful. So, and I'm looking forward to the integrations of AI into EP. And I hope one of you will take a lead on that as you grow up. Thank I you. just have to say real quick with uh, Dr. Tamarisa, I love that answer. The the glimmer and sparkle in your eyes when you talk about EKGs, you're such a true cardio nerd. <laughs> Thank you. As trainees, we get very little exposure to cardiology in a private practice setting. You've managed to accomplish so much. What are some of the opportunities you think are unique in private practice? Again, a great question. And I appreciate that question, Natasha, because, you know, most of the data, everything comes out from academia. And I want you all to know and other fellows to know that there is uh, something in private practice for sure, and you can make a huge impact. So I'll take a step back and just give an overview for the audience about what private practice is, just a little overview. You know, the business of independent private practice has become very difficult to sustain, as you all know, because of the malpractice insurance costs, the decreased reimbursements and, you know, increased documentation. Having said that, if you look at me, I started off uh, in a private practice group, but then just like everything else in the country, we kind of merged or affiliated ourselves with large healthcare systems. And if you ever or anyone in the audience decide to go into it, this pros and cons to everything we do. By any means, I wouldn't say this is perfect. But what makes it a huge difference for me is, I'll tell you, when I came out of fellowship from Ann Arbor, which is a huge academia, I actually was offered um, to stay back at Michigan. And I went into private practice because I think, you know, I wanted to be independent. I wanted to make decisions. And the first thing I stepped in the lab that day, I still remember I had no attending. I had no one to look back to. So I started the AFib ablation program, just standing there and telling myself, okay, I need to teach the staff. I need to take care of this patient. And I actually built that program just over myself and trained my colleagues. So the beauty of private practice is it gives you that independence and there's no name behind it. There's no institutional name. It's me, my patient. You know, they come back to me because of who I am and what I provide. So the quality of care is dependent on me. So that's one thing you need to private practice. Second thing that's unique to the model that I'm in is you become a leader, but you need to be at the table to become a leader. You can't stay somewhere else and say, you know, this is not good. That is not good. There are going to be pros and cons and everything. So, you know, in private practice, you become a part of the decision making. And as you all grow into EP, you'll realize that the healthcare systems, whether it's academia or private practice, you know, what kind of device do you use on your patients? What company do you use? These all become important decisions. And you don't want someone sitting outside making that decision for you. You need to be in the boardroom and say, this is the reason I want to use this lead. This is the reason I want to use that catheter. And I can proudly say that um, in the practice that I'm in, I could make that change. I could uh, sit in the boardroom and make a change, ultimately boiling down to good quality of care for my patient. 
Second thing, the unique thing about private practice, it's a learning curve is my husband is an interventional cardiologist with an MBA degree. So he taught me a lot about finances. And but one advice for you all, doesn't matter where you go, learn a little bit, take a little time to know the finances of medicine, you need to know economics right now have become more lopsided without the empathy, without the care. So learn that. And that's something the private practice, it's very unique because you need to know your RVUs, you need to know your reimbursements and your malpractice coverage. The third thing is the model I'm in, you know, it's, the beauty of it is you can engage people better. I just feel like I had my autonomy to a point. I recruited the administrators and I said, let's do community initiatives. We publish so much. We do so much. How much of impact do we have on the community? All the disparities we talk about. So we've done a huge community initiatives where we raised up with each event and recruited people to engage in disparities, especially the gender disparities and cardiovascular outcome. And that's, you know, domestic violence and cardiovascular outcome, educating those women about healthy lifestyle diet and these. So, you know, to wrap up that topic, I wanted to spend a little longer time on this. So If anyone is interested in private practice, please reach out. One last thing I'll leave the audience with would be know your contractual agreement. Women and gender uh, pay gap is big. So don't sign a contract without having an attorney. You got to look at the contract and say, this is what I want and customize to your lifestyle. And I'll end with that. Thank you so much for that. I love that answer that you were talking about how much, you know, you love your patients and that's one of your favorite parts of your job. And then part of going into private practice was, was your proximity to your patients and the community. That's very, very cool. In addition to your clinical career, you've been very active within the ACC, particularly in regards to advocacy for women in medicine and empowering women in cardiology. How did you get started with your involvement with ACC and particularly in this topic? I'm sure if I actively pursued a path to go along to ACC, I think I just love what I do. And uh, the inner passion of advocacy, where I didn't know how to get to, you know, doing a community work, doing a local work in Ohio, in Northwest Ohio, I wanted to take it to the next level. I, then I reached out to a few people and say, would you have any interest in collaborating, doing this? And luck so happened that uh, my mentor is Dr. Duwanwa. Claire, and she was a ACC chair. So, and Dr. Reshma Jagsi's work, I don't know how many of you are aware, she's huge in Michigan. So Dr. Jagsi's work, Dr. Duan was influenced. I attended the first ACC WIC legislative conference. That was a long time ago. And then uh, subsequently, I was asked to be a panelist representing the private practice cardiology option for those who wanted to pursue. And then along the path, Dr. Tonya Singh, who's an incredible mentor and a sponsor, she encouraged me and said, how come you're not on social media? You need to go on there. (laughs) You have ideas. You got to put them out. I said, fine, I'll join Twitter. I'll tell you, I, you know, multitasking multiple social media probably is not my forte, but Twitter is something I kind of bonded with and I enjoy being on Twitter. So gratitude to her uh, because one downside of private practice is you don't have the opportunity to, to network like in academia, you know, you work in your silos. So that really helped me. That's how I started to grow into ACC WIC. I have long ways to go, you know, but my hope and goal every day is to lift others and advocate for equality and equity in and outside of medicine. And thanks to ACC for giving me a space. You know, speaking of ACC and, uh, and Twitter, we had a similar conversation with Dr. Gina Lundberg about the, the power of Twitter for connecting people, you know, across uh, different programs and empowering people and, you know, sponsoring one another, mentoring one another. It's, a, it's just such an incredible community. Dr. Tamarisa, and you definitely make it better. I we really enjoy following your feed. And, you know, I just love your uh, thoughts and perspectives from the private practice um, arena. You know, for many of us trainees, uh, we just don't get uh, so much exposure to that, what the world is like in community-based practice or private practice. And it's just been so incredible to see how much impact you've been able to have from private practice. And I think in my mind, it just uh, totally, you know, amplifies all the different types of options that we have afterwards. So that's a, it's a great example to, to have, Dr. Tamarisa. But, you know, whatever domain of cardiology you're in, there is still so much disparities in terms of 
opportunity and career ascension. So I wanted to ask you, you know, diversity in medicine has been a major focus for the cardioners as we've uh, grown in this field. Could you share with us why it is so important to have more women in cardiology? And as a burgeoning interventional cardiology fellow, I'm especially interested in your thoughts for the procedural fields. Diversity is super important everywhere. Why? I'll just divide this into three simple categories. One is patients benefit from it. Why Why did we all go into medicine? to take care of patients, right? Patients benefit from it. And we know the data, you know, multiple studies have documented sex disparities in cardiovascular care. Look at, you know, women and minorities did not receive uh, implantable cardiovascular, you know, defibrillators or even bi pacers. And they don't get the guideline mediated post-MI care either. And a potential driver for these disparities in cardiovascular disease is lack of diversity in the workforce very simple. And, uh, you know, and then the second thing I'll touch on that is we know from studies, not specific to EP, but we know from studies in cardiology and outside cardiology, that female physicians are more likely to provide patient-centered communication and with much better outcomes and health counseling, we do a better job than male physicians. So we need diversity just because we want to provide equitable care to our patients. Apart from that, it helps, we know from business models and outside medicine, even in medicine, that diversity drives innovation. Diversity drives creativity. And and then we talk about the leaky pipeline. How do you plug the leaky pipeline? The way we need to do that is by making it more diverse. So more women, more underrepresented minorities join our field. The more faces like me is visible out there, the more will come and join us. So that's a simple answer for that. And just to wrap up that, the gender lopsided fields, they have a potential to affect patient care and cardiology is no exception. I don't know if you know, if you're aware of that program director's fellowship survey, the perception, perception of the program director saying that the field is diverse. We need to change that. No, the field is not diverse. We need to change that. And I think diversity is super important for our patients, for everything else that I talked about. Yeah, you know, these changes, perceptions is one of the reasons we got into this narratives series. And it's just so clear that with every discussion we've had and, and the more reading that we do, that professional diversity improves clinical excellence, it improves health equity, and it improves research innovation. These are the truths of uh, the field. And I just, you know, I know that we're going to be talking about EP, but I've got to put a plug in for interventional cardiology. Just earlier this week, that I did my first PCI, and it was like, the best thing in the world. I was thinking to myself, like, why would anyone do anything else? And coming from someone who loves all of cardiology, but very proud to say that my first PCI, it was Dr. Laura Young who was teaching me. And she's a second year interventional cardiology fellow and one of the most devoted clinicians and educators I know. So big shout out to Laura for uh, walking me through my first RCA PCI. That's uh, very, very good that, you know, she for he. I love that she taught you. And, you know, just uh, cardio nerds, you all have done such an incredible job and keep going at it because this is how we're going to, one of the ways we can plug that leaky pipeline for sure. Dr. Tamarisa, I love how you brought it back to patient care and that encouraging more women and EP ultimately helps our patients. I want to take kind of a bit of a deep dive into one of your reflections on this topic In one of your ACC webinars, the unicorns, you reflected a bit on being a woman in a procedural specialty and made the analogy, which I love, that women in cardiology, particularly in procedural specialties, are like unicorns, were rare. While more and more women are becoming physicians, over 50% of medical students are now women. There's only been a marginal increase in women going into cardiology and procedural cardiology. Only 20% of cardiology fellows and 11 to 14% of electrophysiology fellows are women. These numbers are even lower in interventional cardiology. Why do you think that cardiology and especially procedural cardiology has not seen the growth in female representation that other areas of medicine has seen? Again, a very important question, Natasha. You know, progress has been made in reducing the gender disparities in medicine over the last, I would say, 20 years or so. But the underrepresentation, we all agree, it's a consistent concern for sure. And the reason female doctors are not entering the field, several reasons for that. I don't think it's one um, thing based upon multiple survey data. I'll start off saying there is myth about the field that was there in the past. And we, our job going forward is to shatter that myth. 
That's one. Having said that, it's not all myth alone. There are some things that we have to change. And I'll touch on a few things based upon, you know, different U.S. survey data. Dr. Selena Young published in Jack Interventions, I think. Yeah, she did about 500 cardiology fellows and asked them why, you know, what's tough, different about cardiology. And I think one is the work-life integration is difficult. Even today, if you said and said, are you acing it? Are you, you know, scoring A plus every day? Nope, I am not. I'll be honest, you know, like my kid has a swim meet and I miss those swim meets. I love swimming. I was a swimmer growing up and missing that bothers me. But then I tell myself, you know, I need to cut some slack for myself and I need to make space for myself. I can't be perfect at everything I do. So I think going back to that work-life integration, what can be done? Make hours more flexible, make the field more flexible. There are many ideas that pop up in my mind and uh, program directors and employers can enable that. So one is work-life integration. Second thing is looking at the, you know, the data and the surveys, you saw that there was uh, parenting disparities, sexual harassment and uh, gender discrimination. It's there. And we just did a case series in uh, Jack case reports on uh, sexual harassment. And uh, 60% of the women did perceive that. So that's a huge number, whether it's uh, small or big, it's a gender uh, discrimination, parenting discrimination that need to go. And uh, we'll talk more along as we are talking about this interview as to what can be done. How do we engage men more? And how do we engage other women more to support each other? So that's the other barriers. Third barrier is the culture. You know, culture could be because of male-dominated culture. And the fourth barrier, which you all are aware, are procedural fields. It's the lead, the lead apron, the back problems because of wearing the lead aprons. Radiation and effect, the fear of effect on fertility, getting pregnant, and timing. When do I get pregnant? I have so many mentees who have called over the years saying, how do I plan pregnancy with EP or you know, interventional cardiology. And it's no, there's no right answer. But I think, you know, you, you saw my article in EP Lab Digest, I mentioned, if we can cut down our training time to two, 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 you know, hopefully most women are out of fellowship, and they can start getting pregnant, you know, if they want to have children, we need, we need to make a room for that. So these are the barriers. And then uh, lastly, is the implicit bias. And, you know, we talked about explicit bias, but the implicit bias, you know, drives us away from procedural fields. You know, you look like a woman, you wear a lipstick, you wear high heels, you can't be a proceduralist. No, I still want to wear my lipstick. I still want to wear my heels. I want to do my hair. I still want to be a proceduralist. And that's okay. Make room and don't judge me just based upon who I am or what I am. So I think, you know, making room for all of us. So these are the few barriers, but there are solutions to this. And ACC, WIC and ACC is working relentlessly towards that goal. Dr. Jamari said that was very insightful. And uh, taking it to the next level, while their female physicians are almost as common as male physicians, there is still a gap when it comes to women in leadership positions. You have obviously served in leadership roles in both your private practice in Ohio and again now in Texas. Why do you think women are underrepresented in leadership positions? And uh, what are the challenges that you think exist to make this happen? Leadership, women are underrepresented, not because they lack the talent or they lack, lack the aspirations, but because of the barriers. And what are the barriers? Well, we have the implicit bias and the explicit bias. I'll touch on the, you know, several types of biases exist, but I'll touch on the stereotypical bias. You know, you've seen in Fortune 500 companies or the, if you read Wall Street Journal, any of those, I love reading business journals too. I have, you know, I read a lot. So, you know, when you look at those, the good leadership is an inconsistent with the female barrier. And if you read about the role congruity theory of prejudice towards female leaders, there's a perceived incongruity between female gender roles and leadership. So that stereotypical bias needs to be shattered. That just needs to be, you know, done with. And then moving on to the second barrier is the cross-cutting barriers. What are those? Like sexual harassment, gender harassment. And the third reason why women are unable to get up to the leadership positions is the unequal access to funding and resources, more in academia. And then the gender or the pay inequity is the other one. 
right? And then we're also expected to take on higher teaching, higher advising loads, do everything without compensation. You know, the unseen work, unseen RVUs, I put in so much work, where is the compensation? And I don't think women uh, ask, women need to ask more, ask, say, I'm going to do this, I'll do this, but you need to compensate me. And then I, if you look at any of the national conferences, this is out there, the fewer speaking invitations for us. So the invitations need to be more. So people need to make room for us. We need to make sure to step up and say, I am interested in it. Please invite me and I can get this done. So be more vocal, make yourself be there. And then I talked about all the systemic barriers. Now let's start with myself, like the self, self-driven barriers. When I started my job after fellowship, I was more focused. I don't have family. I lost my mom during fellowship. I have no family. So I wanted to have kids. And I'm like, how do I manage having children? And I'm one of those, I was like, no, I can't drop them off in a childcare at three months. I need to be home. So yes, I did take time off for with each child. I took three months off and I told the groups, this is it. You know, this is my maternity leave. I'm going to be the mother. And so I delayed getting into the streamline of, you know, whatever you call into the career. I started, you know, starting the family and then our focuses and priorities, both for men and women, for that matter, they keep changing with time and stage of your life. So I don't know if they're true barriers, but to get to that leadership, sometimes it might take a longer time and just having the patience customizing to yourself and saying, it's okay to sit, sit in the back seat for a few years. I'll get to the front seat when the time is right. And, and I know in one of the questions I think you asked, or maybe in here, you all said, have I faced uh, challenges towards the leadership? When I started my job, one of my male colleagues, who is since then apologized and we get along great, he commented and he said, you work part-time. I said, what's part-time? He said, oh, you work four days a week. I said, is that part-time? I work four days a week, but I do take extra call to compensate. I The one day off per week is my child's time, my children's time, my motherhood time. And don't you dare call that as a part-time job, okay? And I said, why is it important? And he was like, well, you can't become the director of the service line. I said, no, I can still become a director of the service line because I'm out there. I just told him, you know, for now, go ahead and enjoy the directorship. My time will come and I'll, I'll take the lead when my time is you know, right. So I think for women, the lesson there is we can get there to the leadership, but please put out, put, put your interests out there, speak up for yourself, be your own advocate and make room. And I'll end this with our U.S. politics, as you know, (laughs) you know, the 2018 was a watershed year. I don't know how many of you noticed that we, they had record of 125 women elected to the U.S. Congress in 2018. And look at us, our woman vice president, Kamala Harris, and then ACC and HRS have had two women presidents back to back consecutive years. So we're on the right road. And I think the change has to start with the change of the landscape. Let's not end with uh, just this conversation. Let's keep this change going. Thank you. Uh, We've talked a bit about barriers, Uh, so let's turn towards some solutions. Empowering women is clearly something you're very passionate about and the success of other women. When I think about empowering someone, I think of trying to give someone courage or confidence to do something that maybe they weren't comfortable with or helping them realize their potential. It must be such rewarding work that you do with fellows and trainees. What have you found to be effective ways of empowering other women? Are there things that we can do as residents, fellows, or early in our careers to empower those around us and help that our fellow women succeed? So um, again, another wonderful question. A few things are very simple. Maybe you all do that. You know, if this is repeat, just bear with me. I have eternal optimism. That's my best friend. And I cling on to that optimism. And the second thing that's your best friend is your kindness. Always be kind. Even if you're in a firm stand, you want to make a stand, never go into the unkind side. Be kind. Be, you know, you'll get the same work done. It just saves you. So I think for each other, how do you lift each other up? Shut out the negativity. There's so much negativity that this can't be done. Oh, this is not done. No, shut out the negativity and help each other by boosting the self-esteem. As you have seen, there's so much of burnout. There's so much of negativity. Be an ally. Always speak up. Again, not losing the sight of kindness, but speak up. And uh, 
Another powerful tool to empower each other is validate each other's expression and giftedness. You know, start off, my mother used to say this, and I don't think it's uh, unique to her. I think all of us have heard this. There's beauty and giftedness in everyone. And um, I tell my children every day, don't compare yourself to anyone. There's no reason to compare. We are all different. And that's this beauty in being different. So embrace that. And if someone is not seeing that around you about themselves, just validate their expression and say, no, you can get this done and uh, see their gift and help them see their gift. Another thing is be a good listener. Sometimes just listening to people helps you empower them. It doesn't mean anything. You just listen to them. If they get it off their chest or they might find a solution just in that conversation. Just the, a month ago, a fellow called me, I don't know, somewhere from Northeast, I think Pennsylvania. I didn't even help her. I don't know if I even empowered her. She just needed me to listen to her story. And then at the end of the conversation, she said, oh, thank you. This really helped me find my path. And uh, last part of the empowerment is just because you're lifting, you will mentor many as you go along. You all are leaders already. I can see it. But make room for vulnerable. You know, we all are vulnerable in different ways. It's okay to be vulnerable. Tell other people the same. It's okay. And be honest with them in twofold. One is be honest by giving constructive criticism and feedback so they can grow and be honest with yourself so they can see your imperfections. Don't empower others by showing your always perfect side. There's nothing like uh, perfect all the time. So these are very simple. You know, as you all go through fellowship and training, I'm so grateful to my colleagues and my fellows. I still remember all male fellows. I was the only female fellow, but each of them stepped up I lost my mom just like that. And I had to fly back to India for the funeral. And they were there. They covered my calls. They were there. I, to this day, I'm very grateful for the support I got. So that's how we empower each other, I guess. It's so wonderful to hear that, you know, you had the support of your colleagues and that there was a, you know, feeling of he for she when you were training and working. But when thinking about my decision to become an internist and then a cardiologist, I I did always have at least one female mentor or role model, someone I could model myself after. And even though I've been fortunate, it's still harder to find a female mentor in electrophysiology. Do you think that matters? And have you had female mentors in electrophysiology? And why was that important? You know, mentors and sponsors matter. We all know that. I don't think that's a point of debate. Mentors and sponsors can be of any gender. As long as, you know, I have had mentors in different fields, you know, different aspects, different stages of my life across males and females. And to this day, I'm in touch with uh, my mentors at Michigan, you know, Dr. Fred Moradi, Dr. Pelosi, incredible mentors and sponsors. And and I'm part of a big group here and they're all men. And they're incredibly supportive of me. And they actually push me and they say, yep, you have an idea. We want to support it. So I think you can have mentors across genders. I don't think we need to have just the female mentors and sponsors. Anyone can sponsor. What matters most is the perspective. How are you able to see the? If someone can help us see the bigger picture, how are you able to put yourself, you know, in a shoes that you want to fit in. And if your mentor or sponsor can help you see that, I think that that's, that's wonderful. And while that's true, I will say that role models, it's good to have role models in the same, you know, in a gender, because why? Because as a woman, I just like we talked about having children, having, you know, the pregnancy, infertility issues or anything, it's much easier to talk to someone who went through it, even though the males around us are very supportive, I bet they know, but they can't relate to it, you know. So I feel like the role models, we should have more women because the more women I see, I want to go and say, it reassures me that I can go down that path. And, you know, for us to have enough mentors and sponsors, Natasha, we don't have that many women in the field. So how can we ever ask for to say, I want a female mentor, I want a female sponsor. But having a role model, yes, we can find the role models and then follow them and uh, take their advice and go along. Yeah, this is incredible. You know, my, my mom, my sisters, my wife are very strong women in medicine, pharmacology, neonatology. And so this has just been such an incredible discussion about empowerment and growing together as women in cardiology. But you know, I'm a man in cardiology, hashtag MIC. I have a feeling that that hashtag is not going to take, but we'll try it. <laughs> Dr. Tamarisa, why is it so important for me 
and my hashtag Mick colleagues to be a part of this discussion. Well, Amit, you know, men need to be part of the solution. You know, we were talking about the leaky pipeline and inequality or inequity in, you know, in medicine and cardiology and EP. So men need to be part of the solution. Without engagement from men, systemic pattern of female disadvantage and male privilege will not be fixed. Why? It's not because women can't contribute. It's about changing how men think and behave. That's where we need to change. And keep your own bias in check. How do you, as a man in the field, how can you help narrow the gap? Keep your own bias in check. We talked about all the biases and uh, buy in. Men don't think this is a problem. Please uh, buy in. There is a problem. Okay. And then the passive resistance is real. So we need to undo that passive resistance saying that, oh, that we have enough women. No, we don't have enough women. We need more of them. Okay. And then if, if you can even simply do this, you get called in or anyone for that matter saying, hey, there's a paper. Are you interested in writing the paper? And if you're like, yeah, you know, I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have time. Remember to invite another colleague of yours, a female colleague, and say, hey, would you by any chance be interested in taking up this speaking engagement or writing, you know, endeavor? And I always say this, just don't stop at showing up at the white ribbon day. While we appreciate that men stand against the violence against women, male advocacy, please continue to do it beyond the white ribbon day. Call out, speak up, and advocate for us. And, and then another thing, one of my colleagues, after I joined the group here, someone once asked me, you know, you talk about women empowerment, you talk about engaging women more. That has made me very nervous talking about this topic. I'm not very comfortable because I'm fearful that I'll be judged if I said something wrong. How do I say it? And I said, you know, just come in and always think that you're speaking on your own behalf. Just think that you're advocating for yourself and you'll do a wonderful job advocating for others. Second thing is get over the fear that your other male colleagues are going to judge you for standing up for women. And uh, that's the other concern that someone actually raised and said, you know, people make fun of me when you say he for she. Yeah, so men need to stop doing that. And I, even if someone is doing it, there will be very small percentage of those men. I think a lot of men want us to, you know, come up and join the table. And I would not do a favor without commenting on Dr. Uh, Bob Harrington's, you know, the president of AHA, when he announced no mammals at AHA 2019. That's a powerful stand. That's as incredible a he for she that, you know, it gets. So the great news is men are gaining that momentum and continue to do it. And it, because overall, it's a win-win situation for the organizations, for the systems, and for their leadership as well. Yeah, that's a, a great perspective, Dr. Tamarisa. And, you know, we, of course, are very proud to be hashtag he for she. And, and I think about our hashtag Mick role models, you know, from our perspective. And I think about some of the people who've been on the series, like Quinn Capers and his hashtag take a woman to the cath lab. And one of my, you know, I talked about Laura Young, but one of my other senior intervention fellows is uh, Zarina Sharalaya, who is very active at the Ohio ACC Women in Cardiology group and is actually helping us lead this very series. And she was a mentee of Dr. Capers back when she was a medical student. You know, she really credits her being an interventional cardiology fellow back to him. And I think about Dr. Fidencio Saldana, who is also a part of the series. And instead of talking about the leaky pipeline, he talks about the clogged pipeline. I think he had to bring it to my interventional perspective. You know, it's like the clogged pipeline because there are barriers that we have to be very actively trying to address. And so he's mentored people like Fatima Rodriguez, who is just such an influential researcher now as an early career faculty at Stanford. And, you know, we're excited to have Dr. Bob Harrington on the series in November, actually. You know, and, and I remember that speech uh, he gave at the AHA when he made a, took a stand against Mantles, and it was just so moving. So incredibly proud to have such incredible role models like yourself and so many others to lead the way for this kind of change. And I remember listening to that uh, podcast on the clogged pipeline. I really, I, I think that was one of my favorite. I really loved that, listening to that session and everything. Speaking of supporting each other, our local Portland ACC Women in Cardiology WIC group meets regularly for conversations and community to learn from each other's experiences. Something that comes up frequently is microaggressions. Um, a microaggression is a comment or action that subtly, unconsciously, or unintentionally expresses a prejudice attitude toward a member of a marginalized group. 
Can you tell us a bit more about microaggressions and what you've observed or encountered, how you handled them? What in your eyes are healthy responses to microaggressions in the workplace? Yeah, all of us um, have faced microaggressions in some form or the other, you know, something that gets under your skin. And that's how I define microaggression, something that just pinches you and you're like, ah, oh, I should have said that. Or it's after the, you know, after the event thought, maybe I should have answered this way. My perspective is I divide this into three categories. Okay. One is the random negative encounter. A random negative encounter is someone you're never going to see in your life again some random person at the airport or some random person you're walking to the coffee shop and someone passes a comment, just let go. Don't let that get under your skin. Just it's not even worth your time. Pick your battles, pick your battles and let it go. But that still bothers you all day saying, oh, why did they say that? I mean, you know, that person does not even know me. And so the one thing I always do is I get it off my chest. So either I call a best friend, I have quite a few (laughs) confidants and best friends, and my husband is a wonderful best friend and say, oh, you know, and then so talk it out, talk it out and never go to bed with grudge against anyone. You know, faith is something very important to me. I go to bed every day praying that I will forgive myself for my mistakes for that day. And I will also forgive the others uh, for the mistakes that they did. And that's a powerful healer. Because I think if you don't do that, that becomes part of you and it just cultivates that negativity. So let go. Okay, if it's a random negative encounter, let go. Now let's move on to the second category. Second category is not a random negative encounter. This is someone you have to work with, you have to see every day and deal with. And you know that these things are coming. First thing is paraphrase or restate that statement saying, did you really mean it? Or you didn't mean it, right? And I use sentences like, you know, you can, there's tons of literature on this, uh, but I use humor and I say, nah, that's not you. you I think I misunderstood. You didn't mean it. So you kind of paraphrase that gives you a little time to stand back and say, how do I respond to this? If it's an email, then take time. Don't respond to emails right away. Never. So don't put a name in the response. Just draft a response. Wait on it for 48 hours. And then you'll gather your thoughts saying, you know, I, can we have a conversation about this? And then sit with them and open. Most of the time, if I sat with people and I had a conversation, they're like, oh, we didn't mean it. I really didn't mean this. I, I, I didn't know how to say it. I said it this way. Then I would tell them, you know, just don't utilize words in that way because it reflects poorly on you and it reflects poorly on the organization or on the system. So do that. And the third category is the difficult one where it's repetitive, repetitive. It's intentional. Call it out. Call it out after contemplation. Practice how you're going to call it out, whether you want to use another ally, another someone in the room, a faculty, another person. And I'll tell you, there was an incident when I joined the practice. I was Standing in the hallway, I still remember that day. I think this was more than microaggression. A CT surgeon basically screamed at me. He used foul language and he said, why did you put a a pacemaker in someone without even consulting me or something? He was on vacation. His colleague was covering him. You know, they consulted me. I did it. And I didn't respond. It was very embarrassing. It was very hurtful that there were a bunch of staff members. But I said, you know, I'm going to give him a benefit of doubt. I think he's going through a difficult day. And then I talked to my administrator, who is another physician. And I said, hey, is he always like that? And I'm new to this place. And he said, yep, he has temper issues. I said, would you be coming along with me? I want to have a conversation with him. And mind you, he's a very powerful CT surgeon. And yes, after a week, we had a meeting and I told him it really this is it just doesn't give you credit because you're an exceptional surgeon. It just undoes everything you're talented with. So don't do these because it makes you look weak. My job is not to change others, but my job is to show that that kind of behavior is unacceptable. And uh, how to be an ally, I'll touch on that too. You know, most of us be an ally, Natasha, be an ally, Miranda, Stephanie, and everyone. How do you be an ally? You know, silence communicates tacit approval. Don't be silent. If you're silent when someone else is going through it, 
And then going back three days later and say, you apologize to them saying, hey, you know, I didn't speak up on your behalf. You're going to add to the insult to the injury. So the best thing is to listen to them and, you know, speak up for that day and use micro resistance. Micro resistance is a powerful weapon and opening the front door. You all have looked up the opening the front door. It's a first step to engaging micro resistance, you know, observe, think, feel and desire. So there's a lot of literature on that, the opening the front door, just look it up. And it's it's very useful strategy towards micro resistance. You know, I hadn't heard the term micro resistance before, but I love that. And I, I would also add, I think that that responsibility falls on all of us, right? Not just the person who's been targeted. And I was really inspired by Gurpreet Dhaliwal, you know, it's like world-renowned diagnostician at UCSF, the VA hospital, you know, and they have trainees, uh, student, medical students who rotate through the VA. And they noticed that the fewer and fewer women were electing to go to the VA hospital. And it's one of the best, you know, it's like a crown jewel of clinical education at this incredible facility. And so they realized that it's because there were microaggressions happening as a routine between patients and medical students. And so they activated this program where all of the hospitalists were required to undergo microaggression training. And they were equipped with, you know, almost like like template phrases where you could in front of your team of students and residents and trainees and colleagues, you know, in a way that's comfortable, but but also, you know, a micro resistance, answer back to the patient or anyone else who offered a microaggression. And I think it was just so empowering for the whole team. And I, I definitely took some rules out of that playbook. If you're with a trainee, a colleague, or even somebody who's senior to you, that I think we can all be empowered to help address that. Absolutely. And, you know, using the phrases like, what makes you say that? Or, you know, I don't get it. Can you explain? You know, did you really mean it? Or, wow, that was awkward, you know, but then just find your place. You know, the one thing is don't respond right away, you know, unless you're in a place and you have all your thoughts. I think emotions come in first. So taking a step back and say, okay, how do I respond? Yeah, that's a very insightful advice. And stepping away from a microaggression from others towards women, I mean, let's talk about microaggressions towards ourselves. Um, because I think as fellows and really in all areas and stages of training within medicine, we hear of the imposter syndrome. I certainly cannot speak for others, but I know that I have felt like an imposter at times. And this sense of not belonging, I think, impacts our patient care and the relationship with others, such that if, you know, uh, if we feel like we belong, we can think more clearly, be more thoughtful, be kind and patient towards each other and towards our patients. So having said this, how does uh, the underrepresentation Presentation of women in procedural cardiology further amplify the imposter syndrome. What kind of the things did you do or would you recommend trainees feeling this way uh, do to combat this inaccurate self-image? Yeah, so, you know, think about even people like Maya Angelou going through imposter syndrome, right? You know, she said, I've run a game on everybody and they're going to find me out. So that just tells you even Albert Einstein went through imposter syndrome, if you look at his comments. So I think first thing is to acknowledge that it's okay to feel like that. It's okay uh, to be frank with yourself and accept. Now, you can't stop there. How do you undo those random thoughts that come in that fit into that imposter syndrome? Most important thing is to know the pluralistic ignorance. You know, the pluralistic ignorance is where each of us doubt our own abilities privately. We just don't talk about them, right? And knowing that each of us in this room feel that, and that's okay. But if you just put yourself in a cocoon and sit, your, sit you start to think, am I the only one that think, you know, he's doing fine, she's doing fine, but the pluralistic ignorance always helps me. And I just that moment, I tell myself, I'm not the only one. There are many others who are going through this. It's just normal. There are days you feel that and the days you feel empowered and, you know, they're just like up and down of life. So how do you undo those, the days they, it hits you? Talk about it. If you have your best friend, your colleague, your peer, just talking and relieving those feelings will get you back into your groove and recollecting your own positive feedback. So imposter syndrome in procedural field, you know, it hits me the day I have a bad outcome or not a great outcome. You tr- work for hours to get the LV lead in and for a BIV and it just doesn't work. And you come out thinking, ah, you know, maybe I should have done better or maybe I should have done this. But then I go back and say, okay, 
let me think of how many patients I've helped. This is one that I could not help. That's okay. I can't play the creator. I'm just who I am. And this is okay. So those kind of positive feedback within yourself and your wins will undo that imposter syndrome. Think of all the great things you have done. And anytime this hits you, question yourself and say, how many of us are lucky to get to medical schools, go through training, coach, and even aspire to become EP positions or interventionalists? How many, right? So if the imposter syndrome hits and say, no, I'm very grateful. There's so many who don't even have the luxury, even if they dreamt, they don't have the path to get there. And the last thing for the undoing the imposter syndrome, this is my approach is I journal, I write every single day, I journal positives and negatives for that day. And when I look at the big positives for that day, the little negative looks very small on that page. I just feel like, okay, I can go on and uh, move on. And, and you know, women undersell in general than men. And uh, I think the one way is to listen and celebrate each other to say, okay, we have commonalities, we have differences, we have highs and lows, and that's okay. And uh, that, that basically helps us fight the imposter syndrome. Jen Hunt has written a beautiful book on imposter syndrome. If anyone has not read that book, it's a beautiful book, Jennifer Hunt. Dr. Tamarisa, um, what was the moment that you decided that you would or could be a cardiologist? Uh, I don't think, I think I told this uh, to Amit before. I don't know if there was a moment, boom, kind of a moment. I think it was just a calling. I didn't even know. I was in, I think, uh, even in elementary or middle school, maybe high school, I decided cardiology is my thing. And the early medical school, I knew I'm going to go into EP. The only thing that pulled me aside from EP was uh, CT surgery, because I'm a huge uh, fan of Nina Brunwald, Dr. Brunwald. Even to this day, uh, butterflies come up and look, oh, I want to be like her. Um, how did she raise so many kids? And she did everything. And her husband is Eugene Brunwald. But other than that, I think it was just a calling. I love EKGs. <laughs> so for me, that was just a natural uh, thing. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Your comments on writing and kind of processing your experiences and, and your responses to things is, is super helpful. I was hoping maybe we could talk about some of the verses from your poetry. You shared two beautiful poems on Women's Day this year. In Metaphors for a Woman, you wrote, for those women filled with unselfish love, trying to juggle and balance life, a woman is an endless ocean, a restless yet calm one. Don't misjudge her, appreciate her, she'll take you along. Was this some reflection of your own life or observation at maybe judgment directed at your female colleagues? It's yes, it's partly a reflection of my own life as I'm trying to juggle the work life integration. But it's also a voice for other women who are in the same boat as me you know, trying to juggle, trying to, you know, go through this imposter syndrome and feeling like we are not doing a great job aiming at perfection. Just my voice was that it's okay, that there are tough days, there are easy days, even though the restless days come. Yet we, I think as women, and if you look at, I'm very, you know, mothers, look at the mothers and look at these women who are trying to balance everything. If left alone, they could scream and shout and make noise, but they just don't. They hold it together. And just because they hold it together, they're going along. Please don't assume that they're able to carry. They don't complain that they don't need any help. Don't misjudge, you know, give them a hand, appreciate them, remind your own um, spouses. And even for men or women, you know, remind them and say, thank you for that work you've done today. That little word of gratitude and kindness goes long ways. And that was the, you know, message. Another verse from one of your poems, you talk about women who can fight, but choose not to. This is from a woman who can fight, but decides otherwise to maintain a bond. A woman is not a weak link. She knows her priorities. She chooses her battles. She gives in and resigns for peace. What uniqueness do you think women bring to medicine and cardiology? Women bring EQ to the leadership. We bring emotional element, the empathy, the care, the communication skills, relating and the intuitiveness. That's what we bring. And again, this verse is when I wrote the poem, I don't remember what I was going through. I love writing poetry, but 
I think this is basically to what I told you before about microaggressions, you know, just because I'm okay to fight, but I kind of take a step back for that day saying, no, I don't want to waste time on this. You know, I know my priorities. I know my battles. I'll give in for today. And just because I want this to be peaceful, whether it's peaceful with my colleagues, with my system, with my organization, or just taking care of my patients, I will not allow any anything to come in the way to take my peace of mind away from my patients. Because for that day, I need to take care of that sick one. And that's my job. And this is that poem, the verse that just conveys that message. Wow, this has just been an incredible discussion. And I certainly, for one, am walking away feeling empowered and with more insight to to thinking about, you know, what's under the hood for all of my colleagues and how to make sure that that there's a tide that can lift all boats, you know, every single one. You know, I started off saying that Cardiators is all about the people. Miranda, Natasha, and Stephanie, thank you so much. Your input makes Cardiators stronger. And thank you for taking the whole platform to newer and higher heights. And Dr. Tabarisa, we're just so thankful. You know, you've been uh, a guiding light for us in so many different ways, whether it's, uh, you know, thinking about EKGs or thinking about Twitter journal clubs and clubhouse journal clubs and just empowering one another. And I'm going away with a homework assignment. You know, I'd say again, my, my wife is a NICU fellow and, and she's definitely got a lot of reasons to scream behind closed doors because she's dealing with and not dealing with, but, but thriving through a fellowship and she's taking care of kids and she's dealing with me. So she's got a lot of reason to scream, but I'm going to go and, and thank her for everything she's doing. So again, thank you all so much. And you know, it's, this has been incredible. Thank you. I truly appreciate all the time. I know you all are so young and, you know, it's Saturday morning spending time with me. I hope this was useful and I learned a lot. I learn every day. I hope you all learned something and this was engaging enough. And I'm so proud of the cardio nerds and everything you've done so far. Keep it going. I appreciate it. Thank you. And now, a special word by the Texas ACC Chapter Governor, Dr. Kenneth Schaefer. I am truly excited to be part of this amazing program. The Cardio Nerds Project is exactly what we need to stimulate the passion necessary for our field to be more inclusive and to serve our diverse world. Dr. Kamala Tamarisa is an amazing colleague. She is a rock star in a city of actual rock stars, Austin, Texas. But first, allow me to introduce myself. I am Dr. Kenneth Schaefer, a pediatric cardiologist in Austin, Texas. I am affiliated with the University of Texas Dell Medical School, Pediatric and Congenital Cardiology Associates of Texas, and the Texas Center for Pediatric and Congenital Heart Disease. This is my third and final year serving as the governor of the Texas chapter of the American College of Cardiology. Our chapter has always worked diligently to represent all members of the cardiology community across the state of Texas and to be the face of cardiac care in our state. Texas is a large state, and we demonstrate our diversity geographically, ethnically, and by our racial and gender differences and strengths. Epicenters of our leadership have shifted across the state throughout the years, representing the spectrum of our urban centers, as well as including the diversity reflected in our more rural regions of the state. Our extensive Hispanic population, as well as Asian, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, and European populations have allowed us to have diverse targets for research funding from the chapter and to develop patient educational programs specific to these populations. These ethnic backgrounds also support diversity in our training programs and have allowed the chapter to promote leaders with diverse backgrounds. Our professional populations of color in Texas, be they African-American, Caribbean, Hispanic, or others, provide opportunity for the college to actively develop leaders that reflect our population. Finally, we have a very active women in cardiology section that helps extend our gender diversity as well. The Texas chapter will continue to work on opportunities to expand who we are and what we do. We are very proud that Dr. Shelley Hall will be transitioning to chapter president in March of 2022. Dr. Hall was our first female member of the Texas Chapter Executive Committee when she served as treasurer. Since that time, she has helped us to fill additional leadership positions that continue to reflect our diversity described above. Among these leaders is Dr. Kamala Tamarisa, an amazing colleague and introduced by our CardioNerds colleagues. I would like to highlight one final project that we are very proud of in the state of Texas. Based on a grant from the American College of Cardiology, the Texas Chapter, along with the ACPC section and other state chapters, including District of Columbia, Tennessee, and Georgia, will be holding an educational webinar titled Adult Congenital and Pediatric Cardiology Virtual Career Day. 
The goal is to expose medical students enrolled in historically black colleges and university and other medical schools with diverse student bodies to learn about adult congenital heart disease and pediatric cardiology careers. Doing so early in their medical career will help grow the pipeline of underrepresented minorities who pursue cardiology and its respective specialties. So with that, I return you to the Cardio Nerds. I'm Dr. Tamarisa. We want to thank our project mentors, Dr. Katie Burlacher, who's the president of the Pennsylvania State Chapter, and Dr. Noshin Riza, who's the immediate past chair for the FIT section. Their roles as mentors, advisors, allies have been instrumental, certainly for this project, but also for cardi nerds in general. So Dr. Burlacher and Dr. Riza, we cannot thank you enough for all you've done for us. Dr. Zarina Sharlaya is an interventional cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic and is helping us study this project's impact. So thank you, Zarina. We also thank Jennifer Ray Beckman, the Pennsylvania State Chapter's executive, and Holly Regner, the chapter's project and program lead, for tremendous administrative support in making this a reality. We would never have gotten off the ground without their support. And we want to especially recognize Dr. Pamela Douglas for encouraging and empowering us cardiologists to deliberately talk about and promote this important topic. Thank <laughs> you.